0: Welcome to Where Others Won't. My guests on this episode are Jonathan Rosenberg and Alan Eagle, who are the authors of Trillion Dollar Coach, about former football coach Bill Campbell, who coached the likes of Eric Schmidt and Steve Jobs. A football coach mixing up in Silicon Valley is the definition of going where others won't. If you like the show, please don't forget to leave a rating on your favorite podcast platform. But for now, enjoy the conversation. A former football coach who ends up working in Silicon Valley, coaching the top guys, the CEOs, the founders, the owners, the executives from technology companies. You can probably tell why that would be interesting to me. And on the phone today, I've got Jonathan Rosenberg. Jonathan, how are you doing?
1: I'm great, Cody, and I'm glad you're interested in hearing about Trillion Dollar Coach.
0: Absolutely. Alan Eagle, you're on the line as well. How are you doing, Alan?
2: Hey, Cody. Doing great. Good to talk to you today.
0: You too. Let's just jump straight in. Bill Campbell is his name. He's the trillion dollar coach. Why is that and who is he?
2: Uh, Bill Campbell was a football coach turned business executive, turned executive coach, who worked here in Silicon Valley as an executive coach for over 15 years and helped create over a trillion dollars in market value.
0: And he was heavily involved uh, with you guys at Google. Uh, He was uh, a a trusted advisor and coach to people like Steve Jobs as well. Uh, But as you mentioned, he was a football coach originally at Columbia, uh, spent five or six years as the head coach there. Um, How do you think that experience shaped his approach to business?
1: He started as an assistant football coach at Boston College and then went on to Columbia where he was the full-time coach. And I think, What Bill really did was develop his views of people and human behavior through coaching football players and understanding the dynamics of how football teams worked and then took those principles to business when he came into business. So, you know, people trusting each other, teamwork, building a sense of community and everybody placing the team first
2: yeah you, you think um you know you really think about business and successful companies and places like Google or Apple or other places are built out of teams not individuals you can't get one of the bill quotes is you can't get anything done without a team and so it actually makes sense that someone who came out of the world of football or really any team sports could be more successful as a leader in business because business is all about getting the most out of teams getting them to act as communities and work together for the good of the team not for the good of the individuals So one thing that struck us uh, and our third co-author, Eric Schmidt, as we were interviewing people, was how much um, Bill taught people about how to get the most out of people uh, through teamwork and getting people to work together.
0: Couldn't agree more. And I know you guys haven't read my book, but the idea behind Where Others Won't as the the title, but then also, uh, you know, there's four... Uh, sections within my book: recruitment, leadership, culture, and high performance. And what it was was drawing on those deeper lessons within the sporting world, particularly team sports, that we we should be looking at in the business world. So, you know, little things like how they scout instead of recruit, like not waiting for uh, people to respond to your job ad, and and leadership, like we're talking about here with Bill, and how we build culture around teams and team dynamics. And you know, I, I think we get into this trap with sport and business of thinking of sport as a motivational category, but I love examples like this where it's actually in the minutiae and the, the one-on-one coaching and the, the understanding of team dynamics that football coaches have that we can really grasp onto and are advantageous whether it's business or the military or just your relationship with your wife. There's some real value there.
1: Yeah, and I, I think Bill really understood that it was about starting by picking the right players and he had selection criteria for those players. They needed to be people who would put the team first. They still needed to have the attributes and skills to get the job done. You know, in football, you need to be strong, you need to be fast, you need to have the right skills. In business, you need to be smart and you need to be hardworking, but you also need to be humble and you need to be the kind of curious person that wants to keep learning. And so Bill had a set of attributes that he believed were consistent with individuals working in business and being successful as members of the team and putting the team first. And he really looked for those things and then coached people to get better at those things in the context of
2: the problems that they were trying to address. We talked to, one of the guys we talked to when we were doing research on the book was a gentleman named Jim Roger who had coached with Bill at Boston College, I believe, Uh back in the early 70s. And he told us about how Bill had this the special ability to see the entire play. You know, when we watch football or really any team sport, you're just watching the ball. But Jim said that Bill could watch a play and be able to say, you know, not just what the ball carrier was doing, but what's the linebacker doing and what's the safety doing and what's the receiver doing. Like, see all 22 players on the field. And this was well before there was extensive video like you have today. And it sort of translated into the business world, where Bill could sit in a meeting. He would sit in Eric's staff meetings. And he would listen to the conversation, but also be able to watch what all the players were doing, who was engaged, who was upset, who was um, not happy with what was going on, um, and to observe all that uh, simultaneously. So just the powers of observation Mm -hmm. that a coach has applies in business as well. Yeah, also his ability to instantly
1: tell you and give you feedback when he saw you doing something wrong was very similar to the kind of dynamics that occur in sports and in football. And he would do that with us at at every break in a meeting. He'd say, you did this, you should have done that. So he really had this skill of kind of coaching you in the moment in a way that very, very few managers implement in business. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, it's one of the the missing pieces that I see, especially in, in the business world, that kind of wait till the end of the year. And it's just a stockpile of things that the manager has noticed throughout the year, and and there's less chance to improve that way uh, versus when it's in the moment. Maybe we should take a step back for a second. And when did you come into contact with Bill? When was he introduced to you guys at at Google? And um, you know what? Uh, obviously, people are familiar, <laughs> very familiar with uh, you guys now. But what state was the company in when Bill became introduced?
1: Sure. This is Jonathan. Bill came to the company in 2001, just after Eric started. And I then started at the beginning of 2002. So there were about 100 or 150 employees when Bill started getting involved with us, mostly engineering teams working on search. Mm -hmm. And I first met him at the the end of my interview process. He actually showed up and I was expecting to get an offer and didn't know that I was gonna be interviewed by Bill. And he just walks into a room and, and looks at me and says, I've heard a lot about you. I only care about one thing. Are you coachable? And that was my introduction to Bill Campbell. Huh. And what was your response, Jonathan? My, you got to finish the story. Well, my, my response was, that depends on the quality of the coach. And he wasn't particularly happy with that. He basically <laughs> said, smart Alex, are not coachable. And he walked away. And as he walked away, I think my Google job offer walked into the micro kitchen. And so I ran out and grabbed him and asked him to come back. And he sort of gruffly said to me, Rosenberg, go back in there and sit down. And I did. And I sat down for longer than made me comfortable. And he came back in and he looked at me again. And he basically said, So if I were to be your coach, what would you want to get out of it? And, you know, I knew I needed to give him a better answer. And I actually was not that humble and really didn't want to coach, but I I knew I knew that Tom Landry used to say that coaches can see the things you can't and hear the things you won't, so you can be a better person. So I parroted back Tom Landry, and he seemed satisfied with that for at least a little while, although I think he
2: saw through me.
0: That's probably a good one to go to. Landry or Walsh would usually work in that situation, I would imagine.
2: I can't think of any good Bill Walsh quotes,
0: though. <laughs> oh, I've got them up on my wall, so... um I'd be able to reel off a couple, but...
1: Well, Ronnie Lott actually told us a great thing about Bill Walsh. He said that coaches are the only people who lay awake at night thinking about how to make other people better. And I thought that was an interesting comment from a you know, Super Bowl champion and Hall of Famer who had been coached under Bill Walsh about what it is that coaches do, and then coached, and then Bill Campbell coached him as well in the yeah. business world. So. Yeah, we interviewed Ronnie because he right. was close to Bill as well.
0: Right. Uh, it's funny you mention that because the la- one of the last guests on our show was Mike Lombardi. And Mike's just written a book as well called Gridiron Genius, and it is the story of working under Bill Walsh, Al Davis, and Bill Belichick. Is the only one in the football world that's worked under all three of them. So obviously has just uh, an amazing array of stories, but also just these little anecdotes and the, the the really the minutia of these guys that appear really gruff on the outside, but actually have. Uh, 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 an EQ that is just through the roof in terms of the stuff that you guys are talking about, like little behavioural traits and being able to analyse someone just by watching them, you know, like the the story that I read on the plane home uh, just yesterday was about how uh, Bill Walsh was able to look at Rich Gannon and want want to draft him and, you know, 12 years later, Rich Gannon ends up leading the, the Raiders to a Super Bowl and becomes the MVP and um, it was just through watching him throw at the combine and he's like, we should get that guy. But, um, yeah, there is, there is a, there's a lot that's misunderstood about coaches because of what we see in the media and, and the press conferences, but actually behind the scenes and I'm sure Bill would have been probably the same as well. Um, they actually show, uh, an emotional intelligence that's, uh, very high.
1: Not only do they do that, they work incredibly hard. Mm -hmm. And that was a consistent story and theme that we heard about Bill, both when he was coaching and recruiting, but it was also a a trait that he exhibited in the business world. You know, he'd get up at five o'clock, he'd work out, he'd return calls until late at night. And the level of details that he would emphasize and understand and demand that managers uh, understand in terms
2: of the people. And efforts under their purview was just unparalleled. And you mentioned gruff and the gruff exterior, and that was that was Bill through and through. Like Bill did his or Jonathan just did his his Bill voice and he was kind of gruff and he swore <laughs> all the time and he'd give you a big bear hug. Uh, you know, but you're right, his EQ was off the charts, and he really, you know, he really loved people. Like he really deeply cared. So, you know, when Bill would kick your ass. And I didn't really have the pleasure of having that happen to me very much. But when he would kick your ass, you always knew he did it from a place of loving and caring, like any coach. He's doing it because, you know, he's doing it because he wants to make you better. And that's what makes it work. And that's very different,
1: Cody, than a manager who kind of controls, supervises, rewards, and evaluates performance. And the context that you're getting your review from your manager tends to be in the context of your raise or your stock grant or your bonus.
3: Mm-hmm. With
1: a coach, it's all about candor that relates to making you better. And when constructive criticism comes under the guise of that kind of candid feedback, I think people are more, uh, more susceptible to hearing it and wanting to change.
0: Couldn't agree more. I uh, the reason I was on a flight home was I was out giving a keynote in Whistler, and I actually talked about that, and I did make a joke about the book Radical Candor and how in sports we call that talking, um, and it's it's kind of That's been perfect. it's been built into what we do, and, and you know other elements of the military and stuff like that for for generations, and uh, yeah, I think the key is. Like you said, uh, linking it back to performance. I'm saying this because I want us to get better, and I also want you to get better, and uh, that's in the in the delivery of the message. And that's one of the questions I was going to ask you, Alan. Was as the the communicator of the group, the speechwriter, and and someone who's in communications. What did that language actually look like? Like. How motivational was it versus here's the message versus here's where you need to get better? Like ha- how did Bill, you know, construct sentences that made you want to run through walls?
2: Well, as a as a language person, uh, the the word that struck me most this is more coming through in all the interviews that we did was love. Uh, Bill loved people, and people we were talking to people, many of whom are senior executives at you know big companies, and they just talked about how much they loved Bill. And that's not a word you hear often in the workplace. Uh, But one of our one of the guys we um, interviewed, I think it was Michael Moe, said, um, you know, Bill made it okay to bring love into the workplace. And so everyone knew, you know, they loved Bill. They they just felt a lot of caring for him and from him. And that preceded pretty much anything he would talk to you about. You know, it it came from that that place of really caring. He also had a real gift for
1: saying things in a terse way that had impact, you know, he had all these things, you know, uh, marketing forgot that its first name is product, or, you know, he'd joke with you and say, you know, what are you wearing, you should have that shirt burned, or, you know, (laughs) you have hands like feet, or, you know, you couldn't run a four flat 40 if I threw you off a cliff. And he, he really had a way of finding the right thing to say in a very short and terse way that had the exact meaning and impact
2: that you needed to hear in that moment. There's a real skill, a communication skill of business is getting the point across, especially in email, succinctly, but done well. And so when we were researching the book, we went back through all of the emails we'd gotten from Bill forever. And um, um, we were all just constantly impressed how Well-written they were. Not that they were full of prose or anything, but they were succinct and to the point and friendly and and all of it uh, very, very well done. And that's a really important skill that we can all learn in business is just being more succinct. When my father passed away, I sent Bill the
1: eulogy that I wrote for him. And Bill replied, what a great man. I wish I could have met him. I am sure he was proud of his loving son. That's it right? Right. You know, how many words is that? And it was everything I needed to hear.
0: Yep. And again, you've, you know, you probably would have run through walls for that person. Now it's, yeah, it's funny how consistently you hear that from again, uh, sporting coaches. Uh, I think of, uh, Dean Smith at North Carolina and, you know, used to send birthday cards and, you know, like Michael Jordan had moved on and, and was playing in Chicago 20 years later and he'd still get a birthday card with a handwritten note. And it'd be something similar to that. And like, you know, 20 bucks stuck in it or something. And, um, it just, it, it, drives this loyalty towards that person um, that shows up when things go bad. It's not necessarily when things go right. And and this is one of my big problems with culture and discussion around culture right now is we're monitoring everything when it's going well. But I think we should be uh, looking at how people respond and the behavioural patterns that they exude when things aren't going so well and the company's not doing so well. And it's little things like that that you mentioned, those little notes. That make you uh, maintain that behavior even when things aren't necessarily going well for everyone.
1: It, it wasn't just the notes, but I think he also had this understanding that when a team was winning, it's all about winning, right? You know, with teamwork and integrity and playing by the rules. But when things are down, then the leader really needs to step in and lead. So it's okay to take a back seat and be humble and and not take the credit when the team is winning. But when things are tough, you really need to step in. And those are the moments when you really have significant impact and show your ability
2: to lead. We had a great story. We have this in the book from Dan Rosenzweig, who's the CEO of Chegg. And Dan tells the story of how um, he joined the company and it wasn't what he thought it was going to be. And he was sort of having some second thoughts. And things weren't going well at the company. And he gets a call from Bill. Now, he hadn't expressed this to anybody. Dan had not expressed this to anyone. But somehow, Bill sensed it and uh, basically kind of chewed him out. And he said, Dan, you know, when things are going tough, that's when you need to recommit. That's when leaders lead. And, uh, you know, sort of chewed him out and got him re-inspired. And and Dan sort of mentally recommitted, got his entire team to do the same. And the company is now very successful. But uh, that's... You know that's exactly your point. When times are crappy, that's when coaches have to coach and leaders have to lead.
0: Totally. And Adam Grant wrote the forward to your book. Uh, Adam's a, a friend of the show. He's actually on the the very first show that we did. And one of the things that he was talking about there, and I might ask this to you, Jonathan, was uh, you know great leaders have this ability to lead even when they don't understand the domain and so as the the product guy so you were the SVP of product at Google i get i'm guessing you know he wasn't or bill wasn't you know, au fait with every minute detail of all of the products across Google, but was still able to lead from a, a more general point of view. W- what does that actually look like for someone like you? Because that's that's one of the big criticisms of leadership is we think that someone has to understand every single detail of the business unit that they're leading, but I don't necessarily agree with that. What would be your perspective on that?
1: Yeah, I don't, I, I don't agree with that either. I think Bill understood that you, that, that, that managers needed to be great coaches, that managers needed to earn the respect of the people under their purview and be elected captain of the team by their people, that you know, their title anoints them as manager, but they need people to make them a leader. And he was very, very adept at drilling down to see if you were delivering against the management practices that would make your people have the kind of respect for you uh, that would allow you to lead. He would also look to see if you were building the kind of trust with people that was necessary in order to get them to follow you. And then he would help you assemble your team and determine whether or not the right people were on your team. And he did all of that without weighing in on the strategy and without weighing in on product decisions. What he would do at times is cheer. He would see something and he would say, you know, wow, that's a gr- You know, that's really going to work. When he sensed product and market fit, mm-hmm. he was very aggressive about cheering and saying, "Let's do more of that, or let's do this faster." But he really didn't weigh in on the specifics of product decisions or strategic decisions. He just focused on making the team better and making the team more aggressive about making the product better. And then I think he also really understood that in the 21st century, speed mattered. So whatever we did, we needed to maximize the velocity of our efforts moving forward as a team.
2: I think um, one of the things I learned from the book from talking to people was just the simple insight of working the team and not the problem. We heard a couple of anecdotes where, you know, because we're always in business or pretty much any situation, if you're confronted with a problem, you try to solve the problem. Yes. What are we going to do about it? Let's learn more about it. And Bill's response was, who's working on the problem? What's the right team? And um, he even told that uh, when Sundar Prashai took over as CEO at Google, Su- Sundar told us that story that Bill took him aside. And he goes, now you need to even think more about the team, less about the problem, more about the team. And I think Adam Grant has often said that the higher up you go
1: in an organization, the more your performance depends on other people. You know, you're the sum of what the people who work for you produce. And I think Bill really understood that and constantly counseled us, particularly the more senior people he was working with, that it was about the sum of what the people under them produced and what they produced together.
0: Well. That makes me feel great because that's actually the opening to the keynote that I do most often, which, again, kind of compares business to to sport, and sport being my background. But you know, I think what we get the impression of in business is we're always outward facing. There's all we're always looking at the competition, we're looking at pricing, can we do a marketing campaign? Uh, whereas in sport and professional sport in particular, all we've ever had is the players uh, and the team and so we've we've been forced into being inward facing and so that means that whether you want to improve um uh, you know your team dynamics internally whether you want to improve your win-loss ratio you've got to go and recruit or build your culture or uh, fix your x's and o's or find players that can fit your x's and o's and it's it's always about the team first and I think there's a, there's a real big lesson there for a lot of businesses, not just in Silicon Valley, but businesses across the board that, like you said, the higher, the higher you get up, the more you need to actually focus on the teams rather than what the competition are doing or uh, you know, th- what the talent market looks like is how can we optimize this team and like you said, the team that's actually working on the problem.
1: I think there's that, Cody, but it's also not just the team. It's the team in service of the only thing that matters, which is the product that you're producing. And Bill was very insightful and I think learned to some degree from Steve Jobs that it was product that mattered and that the other functions, marketing and sales and finance and HR, those functions were all in the organization to support producing great products.
2: Yeah, but Cody mentioned also the idea of team first, which, uh, you know, is, of course, important to the success of any team. And one of the fun things about Bill that we heard a lot about was while he was doing all this great work, while he was working with Steve Jobs at Apple and Jonathan Eric here at Google, he was also coaching the middle school uh, touch football team of uh, Sacred Heart Middle School, uh, which is nearby us here. So he was still a football coach, but he was just a football coach with a bunch of eighth graders. And we heard the story a few times of how he was at practice one day, or this happened a few times, and he'd get a a call on his phone. He'd pull out the phone, and he'd look at it, and he'd throw it back in his pocket, and he wouldn't answer it. But the kids could see who was calling, and it was Steve Jobs. (laughs) So, you know, in that moment, everybody knew from 4 to 5.30 on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Bill's priority was the 8th grade football team at Sacred Heart. And, uh, you know, that team came first in those moments. And uh, you know, that just to kind of reinforces what you're talking about. The other way we
1: heard that same concept of team first, that was Bill's way of showing the team that they were first. But Bill also insisted that they put the team first. And he would often yes. get these, you know, moms and dads that would come in and say, well, you know, Joey's gotta, Joey can be here on Tuesdays, but on Thursdays, he's got to leave a half an hour earlier because, you know, He's captain of the soccer team as well. And Bill would say, well, that's okay. He can still play football, but he'll play football on the B team
0: because he's
1: not putting the A team first.
0: Right. I love that. Uh, we talked about Steve Jobs. I- I'd love to dig into that a little bit more because we can also talk about Eric because he's not here. But um, uh, I- I'm imagining... would
1: well, love to talk about Eric when he's not here. <laughs> what
0: do you want to ask
2: him about? <laughs> we do that all the
0: time.
2: <laughs> Are
0: you going to listen to this? I know. We, we, we don't need to send it to him. Uh, but I, I'm imagining Eric was a little bit easier to deal with from a coaching perspective than someone like Steve Jobs. Um, so, Jonathan, I'll ask you this. In your experience with being coached by Bill versus what you've seen and heard from the experience that Eric had, how did Bill customize his coaching between the two of you? Like, what was different that you saw and, and maybe similar that you saw as well?
1: So it's fascinating just how nuanced his coaching was. When we were writing the section on -on one-on-ones, I had helped Alan with the write-up on how Bill would do a one-on-one. So Bill was very nuanced and different about the way he coached Eric, the way he coached me, and I think pretty much the way he looked at everyone. We discovered when we were writing the book just how different his coaching techniques were between Eric and me, we were talking about how he would do Mm one-on-ones and we met with Eric and we'd written the section on how he does one-on-ones he basically has you come in the room and share with him five things that you want to talk about and then he lets you know whether or not that list is the right five things and you have your priorities right or he just dives into the list and Eric immediately said that's not how Bill did one-on-ones you would walk into his room And he would have five things written on the whiteboard behind him. And those were the things that you were going to talk about. And what we realized was Jonathan needed more remedial prioritization than Eric did. And he coached us, he he set up our one on ones differently because he and Eric knew what the priorities were. So one of the things that you could consistently see with him is that he would quickly hone in on whether or not you needed to do better on. You know, performance against your specific objectives, or whether you needed help on your relationships with peers, or whether you were driving innovation aggressively enough, or whether or not you were delivering against your management practices. He had his own rubric for the things that you needed to be coached on, and every player had different things that he would focus on, and he had different ways of focusing on them.
0: Well, and I would imagine, again, going back to Steve, that that would be a completely custom uh, coaching experience as well. Uh, that's what I was interested in because you know one of my big things has been what I've called in my book contextual leadership, and it is just that what you've just described there. This this idea that you can unlead, you can lead with an umbrella idea but ultimately each individual underneath that umbrella needs their own experience and um I, I think that frightens a lot of people because we have this idea of leadership always being the same for every single person but the reality is we we can't do that that doesn't drive everyone towards that performance that we were talking about before uh in actual fact it's going to alienate probably you know 50 percent of the people that that don't necessarily subscribe to those those ideals but um uh Yeah, um, and am I correct in uh, believing that when you guys went public in '04, that Bill actually suggested that Eric step down as chairman and and stay CEO? Was that the the scenario?
2: Well, the actual scenario was that the board had suggested that Eric step down as chairman and stay as CEO for a variety of reasons. And uh, as we tell the story, Eric was insulted by that. Eric had done a fine job as chairman, Mm -hmm. and why would they want him to step down? So he went to Bill with this question, and Bill was not on the board. He was just Eric's coach. And he went to Bill, and he said, "Uh, I'm going to quit because I've been insulted. I've been hurt. And so, you know, Bill got involved and said, "Uh, Eric, here's what we think. You know, here's first of all, he just listened and said, okay, you're going to quit. He didn't just start telling him what to do or what not to do. He listened to him. Uh, and, and, you know, tried to understand where, where Eric was coming from, it was a very emotional point and it was a very, uh, you know, it was a busy time in the company. And so he suggested that instead, maybe he actually accept the quote unquote demotion by stepping down as chairman and staying as CEO. And that when the time was right, uh, he would see to it or help see to it that the board would reinstate Eric as chairman. So it was a compromise and that's exactly what happened.
0: Love that. Um, <clears throat> And uh, another thing that, that I read from the book was this idea that, of Bill having a saying that he hates consensus. Um, I'd love to... Uh... I hate consensus. <laughs> what did you mean by that? Because I love that and I'm going to pinch that, but I, I probably want to use his perspective on it and adopt it as my own.
2: Sure.
1: Uh, I think what he Bill really wanted the best idea and he wanted to run a decision-making process that led to the best idea. And he actually told a story once that in Intuit, they used to actually vote when they would make decisions. And he abolished that right away. He absolutely hated that. Bill would wanna run a meeting where you would come in, you would look at the, you would immediately focus on the biggest problem, you'd get the big elephant out in the room, whatever it was, and then you would solicit ideas from every single person in the room and you would use that process to drive to the best idea, you would base that process on data, and you would always ask the most junior people in the room, not the, you know, the hippo, the highest paid person in the room, you would ask the most junior people because generally those people actually understood the data and understood the facts best. Mm-hmm. And then he would allow a discussion to transpire, and if it turned into a bitch session, then he would shift to making a decision. And it wasn't a decision that was based on consensus. It was a decision that was based on the best idea that emerged out of that meeting.
2: And then you'd expect everyone to rally around the decision. So the most important thing here is that everyone gets heard. And, you know, we all sit in these meetings, these big meetings, around are on big tables, and there's usually some people that are kind of quiet. And, you know, Bill thought it was really important to make sure you look at those people and you say, what do you think? I said, what do you think, Jonathan? Of course, Jonathan was never one of the quiet ones, so I'm acting here. <laughs> but, you know, what do you think? And, and make sure that you get everyone's opinion because, you know, people, they don't need to always win the decision. They just need to make sure that they're heard and that their perspective is actually heard. And then, like Jonathan said, if the best idea didn't emerge, the, the manager's job is to make the decision. You know, a non-decision is often worse than a wrong decision. And you can't be sure, you know, as a manager, you can't be sure you're making the right decision. But you can be make you can make sure you're running a good process.
0: Yeah, we tend to stay away from that, don't we? In in meetings where there's this fear of any sort of conflict or conflicting ideas, and uh, and even allowing those more quiet people to to actually stay quiet. But it might actually be this tiny little nugget within what they say that gets merged into the the. the Grander idea. And like you said, we end up in a better place as a whole than if it's just one person's idea that we take wholeheartedly.
1: Ab- absolutely. And he would often find ways to minimize the conflict by focusing on what he would call first principles, you know, the immutable truths that represent uh, the mission of the company or the values of the company. So, you know, at Google, we often say focus on the user we were in a meeting and people were debating doing X versus doing Y, Bill would always be the one that would come back and say, you know, well, what's best for the end user? What makes the product better? And so he would find ways to move those meetings along and reduce conflict by going back to first principles.
2: But, you know, the conflict isn't bad. You know, at Google here, we have a very collegial environment and everyone's trying to get along. And, you know, that actually doesn't yield the best idea, usually. Look, when, mm-hmm. when you're debating an important issue and people are passionate about it and they have passionate opinions, you're going to argue, and that's okay. Because, you know, as long as you do it with respect and everyone's trying to make the team win, it's okay to argue, to be vehement in your disagreement, and then, uh, you know, but then rally around the, the decision when it's made.
0: Yeah, and that's a thing. Often it turns into, you know, manager's protecting their department rather than trying to get to the best outcome for the end user. Um, And I think that's where we fall down. That's why we we tend to get scared of that discourse a little bit, uh, or where it descends into personal. I just don't like this person, so I also don't like their ideas. And, And that's where it becomes really damaging.
1: Well, the personal bill really wouldn't tolerate it all, but the department bill also would push back against. He really liked functional structures, and at Google we retained a functional structure, um, you know, all the way up until 2011, where you know I ran products and someone else ran engineering and we had somebody else running HR. He didn't like general managers because he felt like general managers would put their department's hat on instead of the company hat, and right. he really wanted to run meetings where each expert from each functional group came in and was focused on putting their company hat on and providing thoughts and advice to solve a problem on the basis of what was best for the company and not their department.
2: But this stuff is hard. That's some of the stuff. That's one of the things I think that's striking about the principles that we have in the book is that they're very simple, you know, team first and caring about people, but it's really hard to do in practice. It's actually hard to run a good decision-making process and run a debate. That's a spirited, passionate debate where people do stay respectful. And that's, that's part of why you need constant coaching to get better at it. You brought up Cody marriage counseling, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like the concept
1: of empathy, right? You know, you, re- it, I can define it and I can explain it, but I'm not sure I really understand it. <laughs> and, and my wife can tell us if she listens to this, that I don't always exhibit it and practice it. It's really, really hard. Well,
2: for you,
0: not for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, uh, it's one of the, yeah, it's, it's again, it's one of those missing pieces that I think we see. And potentially, and, and this is just my hypothesis, and there's no real data behind this, but I think, you know, outside of probably Silicon Valley, uh, and, and that's not a 100% comment, but uh, I think we've spent generations promoting the wrong leaders, and now we've run into this uh, business world where empathy is required. Uh, whereas, you know, in a past generation, probably it, it wasn't seen as, you know, when Bill, when Bill was coming through as a footballer, I don't think empathy was really at the heart of, uh, what they were learning about leadership. And, um, and so now I think we need, we need to have a, a really big rethink around that. Um, the The people that are listening to this that are running organizations that find what you guys are talking about as attractive but maybe don't have the budget of Google or maybe um, uh, are just looking for a coach like Bill. where can they look and or, or even where can they start? How can they start to implement some of these uh, things that 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 bill was so great at?
2: Well you know our our thesis in the book is that, Great teams, to become great teams, need coaches, not just managers, to help them become better communities. But really, the best coach for the team is the manager, Uh, not to hire an external coach or to bring someone external. It's for managers to learn how to occasionally take off that management hat, put on the coaching hat, practice some of these principles. So usually, the best coach is right there.
0: Do you know what's hilarious about this whole thing is that the people that need coaches the most and this is from first sound experience is sports coaches a lot of them have mentors but they don't necessarily have their own coach and so here's a tip for you in the next 5 to 10 years pretty much every major sports coach will have a coach or a high performance coach that works directly with them
2: does anyone doing that now in professional sports
0: there are a few i know from My sport, which is Aussie rules football, there are a couple of clubs that have a, a a coach actually for the coaching group. So not necessarily working with just the head coach, but they'll actually facilitate meetings between the head coach, the assistant coaches and all the different coaches. And and that's more so around the, the communication dynamics. So, you know, when we subscribe to a particular communication palette Ie, this is how we're going to talk to each other in meetings to get to the best result. You know, the coach will be around to actually facilitate that and and lead that meeting, like you guys are talking about. But it's not widespread. Um, I'd say it's definitely going to be the next big thing in North American sports for sure. Uh, But you know, I think often the coaches right now have a mentor that they can call any time they need, but they don't have a full time facilitator around them.
1: I think it's interesting that in sports, the top athletes do have coaches. The top coaches may not have coaches, but the top athletes do. But in business, historically, people who would get coaches were generally getting coaches because they were doing something wrong. Right. And one of the things that we observed with Bill, and this goes back to even when Eric started, he wasn't doing anything wrong, and John Doar suggested that he get a coach. And as we talked to the 80 people that we interviewed, almost all of them were very, very successful. And most people would not have suggested that they need a coach, but Bill actually gravitated to people who he saw some kind of capability or greatness in and felt it was his job to make them even better and make that greatness come out. And so the majority of the people that we interviewed were actually pretty terrific business executives in their own right, and Bill made them better. And what was interesting is they were the kind of curious, lifelong learners that were open to getting a coach in a business environment, which which not all executives are.
0: You've just shared the secret, Jonathan. That is, that is the secret. And uh, coaches make the best better. And you, you're exactly right. Uh, we, we tend to think of it from a a negative perspective when I'm doing something wrong you know uh, I'll, I'll go and get a coach when I need to quit smoking when I need to um, or, or you know, we talk about wedding you know marriage therapy it's, it's when it's going wrong rather than when it's right and actually uh, maintaining the standards over time and, and building upon them rather than kind of letting it lag into something that's quite negative um, but yeah I, I don't know I I sense a shift coming and, and you guys are obviously going to be at the forefront of this in, in promoting uh, Bill, who's been someone that's been very influential around you guys. Um, I'm interested in learning, because I ask this usually on the flip side, once books have been released and they go into market and usually the customers will latch on to something in particular within the book. But uh, what do you hope readers will get out of the book? Like what are you anticipating um, that's that's really going to hit home for people that read trillion-dollar coach?
2: Well,
1: Jonathan, I I guess what I really hope is that managers understand principles that allow them to get more out of their people, and that instead of kind of paying lip service to these notions that it's about supporting your people and trusting your people and respecting your people— and challenging them to do better in this new kind of you know, faster moving collaborative world, they actually do those things. Because I think in most companies, we put those things up as slogans on the wall, and then we don't actually do them. And I think one of the things we've tried to do is articulate how to do some of those things, but more importantly, you know, through narrative and stories, show people examples
2: about, of how they can go do those things. Yeah, and I would just add that, you know, there's so many books about leadership, and many people want to be better leaders, and a key element of this is, is how to be a good coach, how to listen to people, how to build trust, how to show that you care for people, how to actually care for people, and that's sort of like Jonathan said, something that you pay lip service to, but it's really hard to do it well, so I hope that's what people get out of it, is how to do this critical component of leadership, how to do it well, and then and then to practice it and actually try it, um, you know, I said earlier, Bill was a hugger. Bill was a swearer. Bill, <laughs> Bill loved people. That was just part of his personality. But you know, that's not part of other people's personality. There's other ways to accomplish the same thing, and and we hope that people will uh, pick up some of these principles and and try them.
0: Couldn't agree more. Uh, and I, you know, I've talked about this on the show before with people like Whitney Johnson, uh, who's obviously in this this space as as well, and. I feel like the fear often is that um, when you start to care for the people that are in your charge, uh, potentially it it's not a resume builder, if that makes sense. And, and it's really hard to articulate what you've done for people. Uh, um, and it's not always there in terms of well, we increase the the you know revenue of this particular unit. Uh, sometimes it's it's really hard to write down on paper. I cared for these people, or I made this one individual X amount better uh, by coaching them properly, and so. Like you guys said, it's it's so easy to talk about it and read all the books from Harvard Business Review and read every article from Sloan and take in all these best-selling novels from Simon Sinek and all these different guys, but but actually committing to it on a day-to-day basis is is really hard. And again, I think it's because of the incentive of it's really hard to put it down on a resume that you've actually done it. Um, but it, it's
2: well, I, just, I just I just don't agree with that that it's hard to do that. I mean, we do here. We have. As part of your performance, or you, if you're a manager, you have you have feedback from your team every six months. You get upward feedback from your team, and a lot of it is not how did it, you know how did Alan make me perform better, but how did Alan make me better? How did Alan support me? So, you know, at least here that that's a, a an important part of your performance as a manager is how do you support your team? So, I think there are ways in you know in company cultures to actually do respect that and do uh, attach a value to it. And Bill certainly attached huge value to the number of people who he coached
1: who later became CEOs. And I think that's kind of a longer term perspective than kind of the narrow notion of how well did he help them deliver against their objectives and key results or particular performance measures. He was looking in the long run at how people moved forward in their careers and how successful their companies were and less how he helped, you know, control, supervise, manage, reward the kind of traditional things that a manager does. He was looking at the longer term things that a coach does. You know, coach John Wooden, you know, he made Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Jamal Wilkes and, you know, these other players better basketball players, but if you interview them 20 years later, he made them better human beings once they got out of the NBA.
0: Yeah, and that works on a, a, you know, even not necessarily just a CEO step, but a, a next step. So, you know, something that you could ask of a manager at an interview, and and Whitney was talking about this on our show, was, you know, how many people have you led that have been, uh, have left and gone upwards? So how many people have gone uh, gone on? You know, if you're a talent developer, how many people have, you know, become a senior uh senior accounts payable person when they've left or how many people have become a senior manager when they left from uh you coaching them as a director and so th- there are little things that you can find out about the manager that you're currently working for the manager you're interviewing with to find out how committed they are to developing you as an individual uh because ultimately that's what it's all about that's what we're all here for
1: and bill would find it very telling when somebody got a job at another company that was better than the job that we had for them, he would be happy for them, Right, and he would want the manager to be happy for them. He would want the manager to care what the next step was in their career, and if they had a career goal and we weren't able to achieve it, and they found a way to get to it somewhere else, whether it was at the CEO level or, as you say, just at the next level on a ladder somewhere, he would be happy about that.
0: I agree. Yeah. And, and we, uh, again, I think there's that kind of traditional corporate environment where we tend to be sad that someone's leaving, but it's, uh, yeah, we should be, we should be happy for those people that are, that are stepping up and we should be happy that we are the ones that have developed them as a company and, and also from a leadership group. And, uh, hopefully we, we as a whole tend to swing that way, uh, in the near future. Uh, guys, uh, where can everyone listening follow along with you guys? Uh, we can speak for Eric again because he's not here. And then, and then, where can people find the book when it comes out?
2: The book comes out on April sixteenth. April sixteenth at all of your favorite book locations: <laughs> uh, Amazon, Google Books, your favorite local bookstore. But we'll give them the easiest way: type.
1: Type Trillion Dollar Coach into your favorite search engine. It should take you to www.trilliondollarcoach.com, and they can order the book there.
2: And then they can follow Jonathan on, Where are you on? Uh, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And I am on LinkedIn and Twitter, and I think that's also Eric's platforms of choice.
0: You guys need to follow me back as well i'm a little bit upset that you haven't already but um we can uh we can rectify that (laughs) that. (laughs) no i uh i'm very fortunate i've had a read of the book it is fantastic it's not going to shock anyone that's listened to me or my show or read my book before that this would be something that i would be interested in and the parallels between sport and business and and again, going back to my point, not just the motivational piece of sports coaching, but actually digging into what coaching is. And, uh, I'm really on board with what you guys have done. I think you've done a great job. Obviously, you know, people like Adam Grant jumping on board is, is huge as well. And he's a big believer and, uh, I wish you guys all the best. And I implore anyone listening to, to go and pick up the book when it's out.
2: Well, thanks so much, Cody. We really appreciate
0: it. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Cody.
2: Been a pleasure to talk to you. We appreciate it.
0: You too, guys. Thanks a lot. The Where Others Won't podcast is recorded at Apollo Studios in downtown Toronto and is produced and edited by Adam Esker. You can book me to speak by the Where Others Won't book or send me an email at codyroyal.com.